Welcome to Brainstorm, Decoding Depression, where we will dig into discussions about mood disorders. We are here to change the way we think and talk about depression in an accessible, approachable way with a leading expert in the field. No topic is off limits. Coming to you from Dallas, Texas, this is Brainstorm. The opinions expressed are our own and do not reflect those of UT Southwestern, the O'Donnell Brain Institute, the UT system, or the state. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to season two of Brainstorm Decoding Depression. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Catherine Forbes, here with the founding director of the CDRC, Dr. Madhukar Trivedi. Today, we will be talking to Kelly Davis, the Associate Vice President of Peer and Youth Advocacy at Mental Health America, about her own mental health journey, her experience navigating the mental health care landscape, and how this has all led to the amazing work she does today. We are sure to be inspired. Kelly, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to talk about such an important issue when so many people, especially young people, are dealing with depression. So very grateful for all that you all do and excited to share about some of my experiences and hopefully get into some good conversation. Yes, excited to get into it. So first things first, we'll go through your really impressive bio. You hold a certificate in applied positive psychology from the Flourishing Center, a master's degree in nonprofit leadership from the University of Pennsylvania, and are pursuing a certificate of specialization in mental health leadership from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You serve in advisory roles to the Wellbeing Trust, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and the Center for Law and Social Policy. You've been awarded the Disruptive Innovator Award by the National Association of Peer Supporters and the National Peer Leader of the Year Award by Peerpocalypse. And your work has appeared in the New York Times, Teen Vogue, and NBC Nightly News. And you've even spoken at the White House. And that is a ton of background. That's really impressive. You're obviously really passionate about mental health. So let's start out with more of your background and what led you into this work. Yeah, thank you so much. I think the most important thing about my work and my approach to what I do and how I try to contribute to this really important movement is rooted in my own lived experience. So I think a lot of the stories that historically have come out about mental health typically talk about people who are older, but my experience with mental health challenges, I can remember as early as being seven and having this sense that my feelings were physically too big for my body. And I looked around and I did not see that other people were feeling the same way. And I had no words or language to really describe what I was feeling. Just that, you know, I had experienced some early trauma and bullying. And you really, when you feel like that, I think at that age, but really at any point, there's a sense that everybody else is okay. There must be something that's really wrong with me. And having those feelings. So I talk about, I had my first suicide attempt when I was 10 years old and it kind of felt like walking around with no skin where I was so sensitive, especially because I felt like I had all of these vulnerabilities that people couldn't see, but were there. And I wanted to do as much as I possibly could to protect myself. And as many people share when they have that sensitivity and they have these strong feelings, developed eating disorders and substance use problems and really 
isolated people, even when it looked like maybe I was successful or doing things, spent so much time uh, trying to deal with my own mental health. Um, and I just, I think that understanding what it's like to be young, a young person growing up, whether that was elementary, middle, high school, college, and what it's like, especially the isolation and the sense of separateness on top of mental health challenges really drives me in wanting to make a world where, you know, this idea that this happened to me, this should never happen to anyone again. Well, thank you so much for speaking so openly about this. And to some of your other details that you had mentioned, so glad that you're still here and putting in so much um, important work and energy out into the mental health field. It's so important for us to talk to each other about the truth of mental health, because we know that while your experience is so personal, it's not rare. You weren't the only um, seven and 10-year-old suffering through these things. And so many people have faced mental health challenges in all stages of life. This conversation alone is going to break down barriers for others. And that's really what we want here in this podcast and in the mental health um, awareness space, not only to advance mental health care and support, but to completely break down stigma. And I think that what you've just said could absolutely make some of our listeners sit back and say, wow, that's so young, seven and 10. But we talk a lot on this podcast and do a lot of work to bring attention to youth depression specifically. And because this happens, it's real and we have to talk about it. And I'll let Dr. Trevetti go into some of our research. But I also wanted to know um, how and when you became aware of your feelings at, that, at those young ages. I know that you had mentioned it felt like you were walking around without skin. Did you come to that realization later on or was that something that you as a child were aware of? I mean, I knew that there was just, I didn't have the words to say what I was feeling, but it was such a physical experience. And I think people talk about that a lot when they talk about youth mental health is maybe as a 10 year old, I might not know that I'm dealing with an anxiety disorder, but I know I feel sick to my stomach all the time. Mm -hmm. So I think I knew and I felt it. In terms of having the words, I would say I got connected to the mental health treatment world when I was 10 after my suicide attempt, but I think probably as a high school student later in middle school, started to get exposed to information that gave me a better way to talk about what I was feeling. So you mentioned finding support and resources what did those resources look like and were they readily available to you? That is a complicated question. I had access to a lot of therapy and eventually a psychiatrist in middle school and high school and college. But as somebody whose parents did not have health insurance, mm. like is experienced by many people in this country, mm. it was a massive financial burden on my family. When I was in high school, I um, got access after I was hospitalized, got access to Medicaid and had more access to mental health professionals. For me, yes, therapists and medication and all of those things helped. But for me, what was the most helpful was when I was in college, I was diagnosed bipolar disorder and given this message that my life was over 
as many people who are diagnosed with things that are mm-hmm. considered, you know, serious mental illnesses, serious mental health challenges are. And it was actually connecting to other people with shared experiences and learning tools from them and learning hope and finding community. And that there were actually really awesome, cool people who had my experience and I didn't have to feel bad about it. But critical to a lot of these conversations hinges on the idea that, you know, it's frustrating as an advocate to say, reach out for help, reach out for help, because in a lot of places and a lot of people don't really have access. Mm -hmm. So I always think the caveats important is I was lucky enough to get a lot of the traditional resources that people talk about. And I can speak from that perspective is I don't think it's set up in a way that's really designed to serve young people most effectively. No, exactly. And to your point, it, even if youth or young adults know where to turn, there are still barriers hindering access to that care. And it sounded like your family was pretty supportive and able to put you in therapy. So did you come to them with that suggestion or did they know how to address your mental health needs and guide you through that process? So I always make sure to share my own story, but I think in my family, a lot of people have struggled with mental health. Um, My grandfather was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, um, spent a lot of time in inpatient psychiatric care and kind of intensive community behavioral health. So it was probably more expected than (laughs) surprising that I ended up struggling with my mental health. But I will say that the world was still pretty different back Mm -hmm. then. And it was less usual for young people to get connected to therapy. So I think having the family experience, even though my parents weren't necessarily equipped with all of the tools that we might share with parents now, I was in a much better position because mental health wasn't a secret or kind of thing that nobody in my family had ever spoken about before. Mm, It wasn't your parents' first exposure to it. Yes. So how did you turn that corner into You took all of those experiences and clearly started filling in those gaps into a very successful career. What pushed you in that direction and how did you know what steps to take next? There were a lot of really great things that I learned from clinicians who I've worked with. I absolutely encourage people to seek any support that they want. I think we have a lot of research about how effective a lot of different types of interventions were. The thing that inspired me most was that I made it from being 10 years old to being 19 years old and on the verge of dropping out of college. And no one had ever mentioned the idea of disability or mental health disability Mm -hmm. to me before. I had never had access to like real peer support to this idea that instead of being a passive recipient of mental health resources, that I could be an active and empowered person who's taking whatever steps that are important to me, that there were things that weren't just talk therapy, like yoga. I felt like the messages that I had been given at the time as a young person diagnosed with bipolar disorder were so disempowering Mm -hmm. that when I connected to a movement of other people with shared experiences who said, no, actually, I don't have to live that life. I was like, I am going to spend every moment of the rest of my life trying to make sure that nobody else has to feel that way again. I will also say I've always been very, um, what's the right word? I've always been a big advocate 
Um, and I knew, you know, in my high school Spanish class wrote that I was going to move to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and become a mental health advocate. And my high school superlative was most likely to argue her way to Washington. So <laughs> it's also on brand outside of my mental health <laughs> issues. But and it worked. But the, the emotional piece drives me. Yeah. This is a really great conversation to be having with the two of you because you have decades of lived experience and Dr. Trevetti has decades of academic and research experience. And of course, now you have your own experience as a clinician, Kelly, um, as well as being an educator and an advocate. You talk a lot about peer support and Dr. Trevetti talks a lot about community networks. And I want to hear more about what those really mean and how they interact and why they are so important. Dr. Trevetti, will you give us your thoughts on that? So I think the way to think about it is that we need to be thinking about delivering the care for patients with depression where they exist, where they live, where they, where they actually interact with the rest of the world at workplace, in schools for youth, and most importantly, in primary care, pediatric practice, and family practice, and for women, in OBGYN practices. This is where most people with depression and anxiety survive and go through. And often, unfortunately, because those places are not seen as the primary places for mental health care, there is lack of identification, lack of service when there is identification, unawareness of what to do. So what we have done is instead of waiting for people to have to come to the ivory tower to the quote-unquote get the best care, which they may get, but that is too late in my view, what we have to do is to start right from the beginning. So therefore, our community networks have included primary care, family practice, OBGYN practices, in real clinical practice and talk to them and said, you do should not wait for having a crisis before you intervene. You should not have to wait for a patient to come in and say, I'm terribly depressed before you intervene. What you have to be thinking about, like we do with hypertension, like we do with diabetes, like we do with breast cancer, we need to have uniform, universal screening process And once you have a screening in place, you got to have a system in place to deliver the best care you can at your place. And then there will be times when that is not sufficient uh, that you connect with specialists. It's the same kind of thing we do for the rest of medicine. We have to get out of the business of thinking of mental health on the right side and medical care on the other side. We got to be thinking of this as, as we do everywhere. And our most exciting work actually is now beginning to happen in schools because that's actually where the first episode of these mental health conditions happen and they get ignored. Remember, most schools and most healthcare systems and most state legislatures focus on those kids who are behavior problems. And that needs to be taken care of. But there is a whole bunch of kids who are suffering and sitting in the back of the classroom, never giving trouble to the teacher, and yet having suffering. So therefore, these two sets of areas of network development has been one of the most exciting things of my career. The one way we have tried to do this is not only engage the healthcare system or the school. What we have engaged is pay advocates who have lived with this, who have a much better understanding because they know that if they had been identified 10 years back, the outcomes would have been better. So we want we engage with partners right from the beginning. So a lot of our groups, advisory groups, 
include people with lived experience. And therefore, Kelly, you come at us with such expertise, more importantly, with a real serious value for your voice, because I can scream at the top of my lungs everywhere that this is important, but when you say it, it has more meaning. Thank you. I have so many things to say in response, because I think this is probably some of the most exciting things that are happening in the field. I'll say on the community networks piece, I can just think of so many times when I shared a bit about my story earlier, yes, there was some degree of, oh, you're doing well in school and are good at some things, so you're fine. But I can think of so many instances, right? When I was little, my fifth grade teacher saw me and was like, there's all of these, you're drawing all these people crying, like what's wrong with you? Or like in high school, when I was coming back from the hospital or was dealing with an eating disorder, like teachers and adults in my life knew kind of something was wrong, but they had no tools or language or anything to be able to do anything about it. And I think a lot of teachers, especially with so many young people really suffering right now, feel that as well. So I think it's really important in the kind of world of clinicians, but also in the world of where young people spend their time, which is school. I talked too about one of the major criticisms, one of the other major criticisms I have about how my access to mental health services were structured is that they were backwards. Like I had to build this whole secret life where I went to school, I did my stuff, and then I did all of this different treatment stuff in secret outside of school, Mm -hmm. where why should young people have to create this whole new world when we can just put things where they are and where they spend their time? So I think that that community network work is so, so important. One quick, sorry to interrupt again, Kelly, because you're bringing up something very important. And that is when we go to schools and tell them this is what we should do, their main concern is actually once we identify, we don't know what to do. Therefore, the answer is let's not identify. Instead of saying once we identify, let's figure out what to do, even if we don't know and not avoid identifying. Exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I And I've been on so many calls, too, where someone is like, oh, you know, we identify, we're identifying people and we're referring, referring them places, but there's actually nowhere for them to go, which is, I feel like the field in some ways has a crisis of imagination that we should just give up because we can't build out the traditional approach to doing things. When actually, if you talk to people with lived experience, they say you're doing it wrong anyway. So I think that there's, there's some exciting momentum and imagination there. So I work a lot on peer support. There's some interesting challenges when folks talk about peer support for youth there's a, a bunch of things we could really unpack there, but I think in if you come at this from the mental health field, you think that peer means someone with lived experience of mental health services or diagnoses, and a lot of times youth peer programs are just other young people, so I think that's really important to set out, um, but for kind of youth peer approaches... It's the understanding that young people are talking to their friends anyway. When they're having a hard time, it's other young people who they go to and lean on. Um, 
right? It's our, it's where they already are. It's where they're already looking for support. And I think some of the um, really big things that we've learned in the world of peer support is it's first, people just want someone to listen to them and talk to them and sit with them and to not try to fix them or tell, tell them that there's something wrong with them. So I think just training young people to be able to hold space and listen to their friends without getting scared um, is really important. I think we also know from the world of peer support that young people can support their peers in learning different things like resilient skills, like goal setting. I tend to work with youth who are a little bit older, so like college age. Um, and that's that's a really big thing there is helping them navigate learning these new skills, but also kind of navigating the resources that exist. One of the things that I mentioned before is that I had been in mental health services for nine years before anyone mentioned anything about disability or accommodations. And if I had had an older mentor who said, you know, um, you're really struggling. Did you know that there is something called disability and mental health? And there are specific things that you can ask for to make education more accessible for you. So I just think the power of peer support from a, we're not going to traditional service approach our way out of this from a young people are talking to their friends anyway. Those are the first people they go to. And those are the people who they're spending their time with a lot of the time, even if they're getting traditional services, right? I, I say that um, an hour a week in a dark office was important, but I had to be myself every other hour of that week. And I really hope that the people I spend my time with know how to respond to and support me and that I can give them that as well. Exactly. And we spoke briefly earlier about youth aware of mental health, and I'll let Dr. Trevetti speak to that in a second, but I'm also a YAM instructor. And when we go into classrooms, a lot of these high schoolers and eighth graders have lived through some um, harsh mental health experiences. But even if they haven't, a lot of them are very concerned and very also eager to be a good friend to one another. And if they haven't directly experienced a mental health issue, they are very open and ready to learning how to be a good friend. And, and that way it does relate to everybody. And it can, um, just as someone who's also worked in a college space, I know that youth want to talk about things. They just need to be taught how and a respectful way how to. And they're really excited to have a voice. And integrating um, what Dr. Trevetti highlighted about teaching mental health in schools, um, I wanted you both to um, discuss what could be most helpful um, from a supportive peer. So I think that is one of the key issues that we do with the YAM program is actually teach them, not by giving them a lecture, but by them experientially learning what should they do if they run into somebody who has problems or they themselves have problems, or how should they ask for help? How do they then navigate that and not give up? And I think that teaching all of us to actually be aware of these things and be able to help each other, it is so remarkably satisfying and affirming for a young person to hear someone, who often a peer, but even an adult, to say, seems like you're having problems. Can I help you? Can you tell me? That itself is supporting. And then if the kids know what are the next steps in terms of help seeking? So YAM program does both, allows them to understand what mental health issues are, how to seek help, and also teach them resilience. There are ways to cope with this. And that's why 
I am very excited about the YAM program that we are now taking statewide because it allows us to go to the entire classroom. It does not label somebody one way or the other and teaches them so that, that the whole community elevates. And that's really what our goal is. Yeah, I will add to that. Well, first, on the peer support thing, I'm currently working on a project to better understand the experiences of college students in peer support programs. And what we've heard is that there's actually so many people and students who want to be trained that they cannot Mm -hmm. meet the demand for training young people who want to support their peers. So to your point, young people are so invested and willing and wanting to do and get support to really learn how to be most effectively there for someone. I think in terms of something that is key in addition to the resilience and being able to refer folks to specific places is just the ability to hold space. I think that there's a culture of if somebody tells you something distressing that there's pressure on you to fix it or that that person wants you to Mm -hmm. fix it, but actually most people just wanna be heard. And often if you ask someone when you're venting, are you asking the other person to fix your problems? You often would never even expect them to. And you just want to share your experience and what you're going through. So I think equipping people with just the skills to hold space and not try to fix their friends and being a safe space for them to turn to is really important. I would also say in terms of stigma reduction, um, there's some research, including a survey that came out through Healthy Minds, I believe, that actually, you know, proximity reduces stigma, right? So it's important that folks like Selena Gomez, Michael Phelps, these really esteemed public figures talk about their mental health. But a lot of stigma is really broken down when you hear people close to you talk about mental health. So I think stigma reduction campaigns that don't equip real people to share real things with the people around them are really limited in their ability to make people feel more comfortable opening up. Exactly. And I'd actually like to hear both of your perspectives on the following question. What do you think is the biggest misunderstanding about depression or bipolar disorder or mental illness in general? And this is a really loaded question, so feel free to take it any direction that you'd like. But misunderstanding about the disease itself, maybe what you wish people understood about how to approach someone who's struggling um, and whatever you think is the biggest obstacle in addressing mental health awareness and education? That is a loaded question. (laughs) Um, I would say one of the things that has made the biggest difference for me is I think media is getting better at it, but historically, and I think the ideas that I was exposed to, particularly with my family history, is that there is this idea that if you are diagnosed with something like bipolar disorder or psychosis or schizophrenia, you cannot live a good life. And that is not true at all. I think that for a lot of people, when they're diagnosed with something, they feel like they will never get better, even if they feel initial relief that, oh, there's a name and there's language for me to be able to talk about this. So just that things can get better. And even if whatever your struggle is does not go away, You know, I still deal with periods of depression and mania and anxiety, all of those things. But I feel like actually the way that I've 
been forced to find community and had access to resources and have to prioritize my own mental health. Um, in many ways, I experience a far greater wellness, I think, than some people who will never have a psychiatric diagnosis. So it's not the end of the world, I think, if you have this any of these diagnoses. I, I I totally agree. I mean, this was fantastic explanation. The only two small things I'd add is one is exactly what Kelly is saying. When you said you have one of these things, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, the per everybody around the person and including the person feels like life is doomed, and that's not true. In fact, we have very good treatments that work. And the other major issue which we are trying to really change is the earlier you get the understanding of what it is, identification and diagnosis, the less likely you may even need medications and lead a full normal life. So I think that the more we do with this early and intervene right away, the less we will need aggressive treatments and people can have a fantastically normal life. Uh, obviously, uh, some people may need more aggressive treatments, but that is true for any condition. So that's the first and most important thing in my view. And the second thing is Kelly is a good example of saying even if you have one of these things, you can actually excel. And one key thing she mentioned I want to highlight actually, that there are obviously downsides, but there are in, indirect advantages like you just said, that your life because of the struggles you've gone through has also been enriched in some ways that somebody without bipolar disorder may never have that enrichment. So there are pluses and minuses. If I can just add to the importance of something really shift for me too, as my mental health experience evolved on that point where initially I was really looking for examples of someone could overcome this. Mm -hmm. And as I got more involved in mental health movements, I get choked up, I cry. I, I'm always on the verge of tears when I talk about this stuff, but it's like actually some of the most beautiful things, whether they are in the world of mental health change, in art, in film, all of these things are created by people with these diagnoses. So there's also, it's not, you know, it's not just shame. It's not just, I can get over this, but it's that you're actually, this is kind of the world of disability pride. You're connected to and part of this amazing, vibrant, beautiful community that yes, even if there are really hard things that you're dealing with now and may deal with, you know, randomly or for extended periods throughout your life, there's a really special and wonderful community that you're a part of too. Excellent point. I want to give you both the platform now to say anything else that you want to get out to the world on this topic. So what's the most important thing that you both would like to share today? Don't hide it. Do not be silent about it. And get anybody who is who you trust to help you. It is not, uh, should not feel shame about getting some help. I think if I am having pain in my leg, I'll go and find somebody who'll help. Same thing you do. Do not ignore it because there are very good treatments available. I would second that and also say that everyone has a role to play in addressing and improving mental health. And for me, mental health advocacy has probably been the most effective and long-term mental health intervention that mm -hmm. I've ever received, where it was, you know, 
talking about things like purpose and community and belonging, the gifts that mental health advocacy have given to me have really been protective for a lot of the challenges that I've experienced. So everybody has a role to play, whatever your unique skills are, whether you're an artist, whether you're a policy advocate, whether you just listen to your friends or you share about your story. I think we need all of us. And I would strongly encourage people to explore some of the ways that they might be able to contribute um, based on their unique skills. And for those ready to take the next step in their advocacy, where do you recommend that people can look to first? I definitely recommend as someone who works for Mental Health America to check out our resources. Um, Last fall, we did a partnered event on youth activism with YouTube, and we developed a toolkit that's seven ways to get started as a mental health advocate. It's a really great place to start, but there's a lot of really awesome organizations all over the place doing really cool programs. So I think also looking around social media, if there's a specific topic in mental health that you're interested in, or looking at your state or local community to see what's happening there too. These are all great ways to get started. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly. I'm looking forward to seeing where all of this goes and following along with all of your work. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kelly. Thank you for what you do. This is very important. And the more people in the community get engaged like you do, the easier we will get to reducing stigma. So thank you very much for your help. That's it for this episode of Brainstorm Decoding Depression with your hosts from the Center for Depression Research and Clinical Care. Be sure to follow us on social media at UTSW underscore CDRC so you don't miss our episode announcements. If you have suggestions for topics or questions you'd like answered, we have a new email address just for this podcast, decodingdepressionpodcast at utsouthwestern.edu. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.